The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Lippin. Fear and Loathing in Lost Wages, written by Mercedes Lackey, read by Veronica Chaguerre. The name on the ID badge said Bella Dawn Parker, but Dr. and Dr. Parker's little girl Bella existed now only in scrapbooks and photo albums and the Bonanza High School yearbooks, where Bella's blue hair and skin were unusual, but by no means extraordinary. Her graduating class had included Tommy Shane, who was surrounded by a permanent aura of shadow, Violet Running Deer, who could power the entire school in the event of a power failure, Sam the Gay, a Navajo psionic who could control any animal, Jose Dakea, an Apache who was just beginning to figure out his firepowers when Bella graduated, and Fred Salzberger, as bright red as Bella was blue, who had been barred from football because no twelve guys put together could bring him down. No, she wasn't alone at Bonanza, nor for that matter in Las Vegas as a whole. Metahumans didn't stand out in a city like Lost Wages, where you could stand waiting for the bus next to a Russian acrobat, a seven-foot-tall transvestite in Cleopatra drag, a guy with an albino anaconda wrapped around his shoulders, and five elvi, and all anyone wanted to talk about was the football scores. It was a good city for a beauty like her to grow up in, where blue hair and blue skin and the ability to heal with a touch were cool and assets and not the possible indicators of being a biohazard, or worse. Now she was the rookie in Station 7 of the Las Vegas Fire Department, alternate driver of Rescue 2, Paramedic Parker, EMT-4, the highest rank there was. Also, registered Mach 1 with Echo Rescue. Goodbye, Bella. Hello, Blues, which was her FD nickname. Funny thing, her being the first in three generations not to go to college. Grandma and Grandpa had worked for Oppie, Robert Oppenheimer, out at the Nevada test site on the first atomic bombs. They'd met there, in fact, and later, when their son Robert had gone to work at Groom Lake, what most people called Area 51, he'd continued the tradition of finding romance at work by meeting and marrying Bella's mother. Grandma said once that while seeing her daughter-in-law giving birth to a bouncing blue baby had been a little disconcerting, it hadn't exactly been unexpected. Well, the number of unusual kids at Bonanza who had parents working at Groom was pretty high. It was her turn to cook, which meant they were getting spaghetti. Of course, the guys all liked her spaghetti, so that wasn't exactly a hardship for anyone. Spaghetti and chili were staples at most FDs, in no small part because they could be reheated. Rarely did anyone in a firehouse get to finish a meal. She, however, had already had her lunch early, since she'd also cooked breakfast and had eaten that at 5 a.m. Now... She lounged back and watched the guys trundle in, mostly still wet from showers. There'd been a junkyard fire earlier, something weird about it from what they'd been saying on the radio. Guy in a set of powered armor had taken off from the middle of the bales of paper to recycle. No ID on him, but a complaint had been lodged over at Echo. 
Hey, blues. One of the other rookies looked over at her as he was dishing himself out red sauce. How'd you get to be EMT4 so fast? You're only, what, 19, 20? I slept with the instructor. She smirked. Nah, it was actually a lot less dirty than that. I started taking the EMT courses while I was still in school, as soon as I was allowed to. They needed me at games and stuff, and they wanted me legal. I got the jump start because Echo Rescue tapped me for the touch healing when I was 12. Damn, there goes my bet. Her cell phone went off. She glanced at it. Mom? Huh. Odd. This was the middle of the day. Usually she and Dad were hot on some project at Alienville at this point in the day. She answered it. Hi, Mom. What? The sounds coming over the phone stopped her heart. Screaming. Explosions. Someone... It sounded like Dad, yelling, In the shelter, now, go, go, go! And her mom's voice, shaking, saying only, Red alert, lockdown. Then the phone went dead. Then the klaxons in the station went off. And then all hell broke loose right outside. Inside the fire station, no one paid any attention to the frantic mustering of all possible personnel. It didn't matter. They couldn't have gotten there anyway. Bella crouched in the door that had opened automatically for the engines to move out, which they couldn't, and stared in horror. There were nine-foot-tall suits of chrome-plated armor with Nazi swastikas on them, hosing down the street outside with energy cannons built into their arms. It looked like there were about twenty of them. One of them was all black, but the rest of them gleamed in the harsh Vegas sunlight like something right out of one of the stage shows. Except that things out of stage shows didn't explode cars and chase screaming civvies and... Oh, hell no. Those cannons were swiveling to point at the station. Just as that fact registered on her brain, she felt someone grab her shoulder and fling her backwards, just out of the path of the first swath of energy pulses. She scrambled the rest of the way out under her own power, as the blue-white light engulfed the front of the engines. She followed the rest out the back and down into the dry wash behind the station, just as the station itself went up in a fireball. She ducked her head, and the wash of superheated air scorched over her. Instinctively, she looked up as soon as it had passed and did a head count. Shit. Three short. Gadgets, Long John, and the other rookie. Shit, shit, shit. Incoming, screamed the captain, before she could more than register the fact that there were probably three men down in what was left of the station, and she ducked her head in automatic response to the roar from behind. The engines. The sonic boom was enough to flatten her into the desert sand, Yet somehow she looked up, dazed, just in time to see the entire line of armored monstrosities swept off their feet and engulfed in rocket-fueled explosions. As the Air Force Thunderbird team pulled up and out and rolled over and came back for a second sweep, traveling at Mach 1 at the very least, she and the others were on their feet, cheering, even though they couldn't hear themselves cheer. 
pumping their fists in the air, as the aerobatic team came back on their second pass and raked the war machines with another set of wing-fired rockets. Despite the similar paint job, these weren't their display planes. Oh, no. The Thunderbird pilots were the elite of the Air Force elite, and like anyone else really in the know. Bella knew that part of what went on at Groom Lake was that once a week, the show team practiced live-fire exercises, exercises with weapons and skills designed to take out rogue metahumans, just to keep their hands in, just in case. Because Lost Wages might be the home of the showgirl, the slot machine, and the all-you-can-eat buffet, but it was also the home of Nellis Air Force Base and Groom Lake Research Facility, also known as Area 51 and Alienville. And the Boy Scouts weren't the only group whose motto was, Be Prepared. Whatever those powered suits had been built to withstand, it wasn't what was in the rockets fired by these fighter jets. They were down, and they weren't moving. The Thunderbirds pulled around for a third pass, but it wasn't needed. The suits were down, and stayed down. The Thunderbird team didn't slow down for so much as a wing waggle. They peeled off and headed east, where more smoke and fire and the flash of an energy cannon betrayed another point of attack. Bella staggered up out of the wash before the jets had cleared the area. Three men missing. Screaming told her that there were civvies hurt. If there was anything left of her kit in the station. People needed her. Even without the kit, she had her touch healing. She could hold them stable until... Incoming! The captain screamed again, and she hit the ground as something roared in overhead, and she heard... Her comm unit made a noise she'd never heard it make before. A kind of warble. Just as the thing overhead, too small to be a jet, but moving at least that fast, did a kind of wing over and plunged straight down towards her and blasted to a landing, backpack jet unit whining as it ramped down. A meta? A hand-empowered armor reached down and hauled her effortlessly to her feet. A meta. The other hand pulled up the visor of a red, white, and blue helmet, and a pair of absurdly young eyes stared at her. A meta. One on our side. Bella, Dawn, Parker? asked a voice amplified into a hollow audibility that cut through the ringing of her ears. She nodded numbly, half of her mind still on the remains of the station, the injured civvies, the missing members of her own crew. You're activated. This is a full code red emergency. I am directed to take you. That part registered, and she stared at him in outrage. Take me? You're taking me nowhere, mister. My job is here. I don't... Parker. The young man barked with surprising authority. You're activated. Groom Lake's being hit this second, and we're assembling a meta-team to go in. That was when it hit her with the force of a blow to the gut. Groom Lake? Mom and Dad? Bella crouched in the shelter of a blast door, fear putting a metallic taste in her mouth. The door was of Cold War-era vintage, as thick as her arm was long, and it was hanging askew, blown partly out of its track by something. 
Were the arm cannons on those Nazi monstrosities powerful enough to do that? Or was there something worse in there now? She glanced over at Ironhawk, the Navajo Meta who'd been the code talker for the Air Force Metas on the German front. He was the leader for their ill-assorted bunch of babies and retirees. He could not have been young when he'd signed up for the job, and he was old now. When her grandfather had been working alongside Oppie, he had been driving the Nazis nuts, trying to figure out what he was saying. Nazis? No wonder he was here. He remembered the first go-around against them. This is not the time for subtle, he was saying, looking over them all. You all got the briefing. The weak points on that armor are the joints, the visor if they haven't got the blast shield down, and that spot here. He pointed at the same place in his throat where Bella would do a trach if she had to. The rest of the armor is too tough for anything but plasma hot fire. So tell me, what he got? Left or right? Farthest left was Bella's own high school classmate, Fred Salzberger. I got a pretty blast-proof hide. I'm strong and tough, he said, the red of his blush mostly hidden by his red complexion. I can bench-press sedan easy enough. Not strong or tough enough to punch through him, though. Ironhawk shook his head. Not necessary. Just throw things, the bigger the better. Aim for the knee. I need a name for you. I won't remember Fred. Red Rock, Fred replied instantly. Ironhawk nodded brusquely. Next. Tap gun. I got your plasma cannon right here. This was the young guy who was half jump jet that had pulled Bella off her fire crew. He patted one forearm. Well, lasers, but they get plasma hot. How long a burn? Ironhawk demanded. Ten seconds. Computer-assisted targeting. Visor primary, knee joint secondary target. And keep your head down. You don't look like you've got enough armor to stop a pea shooter. Next. That was her. Blues. LVFT paramedic. Psychic healing. Her jump bag was at her feet. Bag, not box. She wanted her box. Every paramedic had his or her own box, his or her own way of organizing it. But her box was somewhere back in the ruins of the station, and this was what they had given her. Stay down, like you would on a SWAT assist. Next. Sparky. Electrical arcs. That was Violet, one of Bella's best friends, engaged to Fred. I'm guessing nothing short of a lightning bolt is going to get past the armor. You'd be guessing right. Same as Red Rock. He looked around the rest of the group. That goes for all of you. The armor can take a direct hit from a stinger missile. If you can't punch through something like that, don't try. SWAT Team Fire has taken out knee joints, so go for those, or try and hit them with large, heavy objects. He resumed his roll call. Bella again took mental inventory of her bag. She had to know where everything was, be able to put her hand on what she needed without looking. This was going to be hell. Within seconds of the first engagement, as Top Gun was shot right out of the air to fall headless at her feet, she knew it was going to be worse than that.
Heal and patch up. Heal and patch up. Forget even looking at minor injuries. This was combat triage. Her supplies were long gone, and she was working off of what she found in the emergency medical kits that were bolted to the wall of each room. She was operating in a kind of numb state of shock, and had been since the first casualty. Working for the Vegas FD inured you to a lot of things, but not to having someone decapitated in front of you. According to the chatter on her headset, they were about halfway through the underground complex, which didn't bode well seeing as they had already taken three casualties, Top Gun, Fred, and Vi. The energy cannons were devastatingly effective. Vi had gone into hysterics when Fred went down, and arced her useless bolts of electricity at the Nazis, only to be hit by three cannons at once. Bella could feel hysterics of her own boiling just under the surface. If she survived this, her breakdown was going to be spectacular. If. There was something else building inside her, too. It felt like pressure, like a migraine, or the way some people feel a seizure coming. She had scant time to think about what that could mean, though, not with people dropping and the fire from energy cannons taking divots out of floor, walls, and ceiling. Half the lights were out, and they were fighting from room to room in a crazy quilt of fluorescent brightness and shadow, crawling through holes where doors used to be. The complex had been built to Cold War standards, meant to take direct hits from nuke-armed ICBMs, so what was load-bearing was still standing, but the cinder block and sheetrock internal walls were no match for what had invaded. And the noise. If she hadn't been wearing the comm headset, she'd have been deaf within the first few minutes. The whine of weapons powering up, explosions, the howl of the alarm systems, screams. There were bodies, some dead, some still alive everywhere. Mostly bodies in military uniform, some few in suits and lab coats, a couple in coveralls. She stopped to check each one, which tended to drop her behind the rest. This was where most of her supplies had gone, to the injured and the unconscious here in the complex. Because members of her team didn't need her supplies. They needed her gift. They needed her psychic ability to push cells into replicating and healing so fast you could see the wounds closing. Nothing less would do, because anything less wouldn't get them back in the fight. You didn't get something for nothing, not even with a psychic power. The energy for that came from her. She burned herself to heal them. In the ambulance, she gulped pure glucose. Here, here she was on her own. Blues! Another shout from up ahead, and she hurried to catch up, scrambling over a tumble of cinder blocks and across the wrecked desk, coughing on the smoke from something on fire at the other end of the room. Even as she coughed, the sprinkler system went off, and she swept wet hair back as she scuttled around another cubicle wall to where she felt someone in agony. Guy calling himself Turbine. Speedrunner. Not all that useful until about six rooms ago, he'd figured out he could spin like a top and knock the suits over. When they were knocked on their asses, they couldn't shoot at anyone. Except someone must have gotten off a shot at him. Made in America. One of the war vets was holding him. Bella put her bare hands against his bare flesh and immersed herself. It was a gestalt sort of thing. Somehow she knew where to send her psychic energy, what to heal first. 
First off, block of consciousness. He didn't need to be here for this. He stopped screaming and she didn't have to look at him to know that his eyes were closed. Tear in the pericardium. She sent the heart cells into a frenzy of replication. Being in there was like being in a mosh pit, except that she had a modicum of control in there. Broken ribs? Bones were harder. They didn't heal as fast. She bolstered them with cartilage as she lifted the bones into place, gluing the bits together with the flexible stuff. Better for her purposes than bone, really. Finally, chest muscles. Turbine's chest looked like hamburger, but that didn't matter. He'd bleed out if an ordinary paramedic was there, but Bella wasn't an ordinary paramedic. Beneath her hands, rivers of cells flowed into place. The muscles were rebuilt strand by strand, fiber by fiber. Veins and arteries, nerves rejoined. And the last step, the easiest, skin crept across the muscles that had once been open wounds. Then a jolt to his head to bring him out of it. He came awake all at once, his mouth open to scream when he suddenly realized he wasn't in pain. Made in America heaved him up. Get back with the others and be more careful, she growled, as the kid, younger than Bella for sure, felt his chest. She felt him turn, felt the thanks welling up in him, but she was already gone, following the next thread of agony, the next call of blues. They were dropping faster now, and she felt lives ebb away before she could even get to them. Her mind was overflowing with those memories now, and she couldn't stop them. All those things she hadn't wanted to think about. Vi lying in a crumpled heap, only half of Fred visible under a pile of crushed machinery, and the anger and the fear and the terrible, horrible grief bursting out of her like water from a burst main. She was crying. Crying now when she couldn't stop. Crying for Vi, for Fred, for that Air Force guy called Top Gun who had been one of the first dead, just shot out of the air to land at her feet, for people she knew and people she didn't, and people she had only met a half hour before. And she ran out of energy just as Ironhawk went down. She put both her hands on him and tried to squeeze out something, anything, but there wasn't anything left to give. She lifted her head, about to howl with anger and grief, and looked straight up into the visor of a Nazi. And something inside her snapped. She did what she had sworn never to do, from the moment she knew she was telepathic. All vows were forsworn today. Ruthlessly, coldly, she reached inside his head. Fueled by rage, she took his thoughts and yanked. Hard. Brain scrambled, he went down, twitching. Two of the others fell on him and cut arms and legs off at the joints. The occupant of the suit didn't even register the pain as his life bled out and Bella did nothing to stop it. Still holding the lifeless body of Iron Hawk, feeling like a bundle of sticks in her arms, she sent out her mind three more times, invading the minds of the Nazis to paralyze one with fear, throw the second into a mire of confusion, and the third, oh, the third, him she gifted with his own paranoia a fear that all of those around him were traitors and would kill him, and made that fear real. The best armed of the lot, he began strafing his own men until, finally, one of them brought him down. And then her rage ran out, 
leaving her holding on to the verge of consciousness with the tips of her fingernails. But it was enough. That turned the tide. And as soon as she knew they didn't need her anymore, she let go of consciousness and slid down into a place where, for a little while, there were no tears, no grief, and no guilt. At least for now. Fire in the Sky Written by Mercedes Lackey Read by Veronica Jaguer She arrived as a semi-incarnate on the day of the invasion. She and her siblings were all instruments on that day, but Atlanta was hers, hers alone to defend. In the tangled futures, a nexus point. Once, in the conflict known among humans of Terra, as World War I, a bit of apocrypha, legend rooted in fiction, was created the story of the so-called Angels of Mons that rode across the battlefield saving allied lives. She and her siblings, however, were very real, and they had been given extraordinary license on this one day, as well as one simple command. Save as many as you can. The futures knotted and tangled too closely at this point to be sure of who was the most important to save until the very moment came to save them. In some cases, it might never be clear. Even an angel could only do so much, being only a facet of the infinite, and not the infinite itself. So she wielded her powers, her spear of fire and her flaming sword, across the face of ravaged Atlanta. She saved those she could, and regretted those she could not. She felt every person that fell, felt their pain, their lives, their transitions. Sometimes, without meaning to, she looked at them, and at those she did save, and saw their lives laid bare before her, and their pain became her pain. She raged across the sky with the curiously impartial anger that only an angel could sustain, using her powers with surgical precision. She could have flattened the city, but a seraphim is absolute power contained in absolute control. She used only what she had to, no less, but no more. Not all those who saw her saw her for what she was. That was all a matter of belief. Virtually all the metahuman magicians knew her. Of course, they were used to thinking in terms of transcendence. Those who believed in more saw her in her full glory, robed in flame, fire-crowned, embraced in light and borne upwards on the wings of the phoenix, with the sword of Michael in her right hand and the spear of justice in her left. The rest saw another metahuman, one they did not recognize, who must, by the success she was having against the Thulean constructs, be at least a Mach 3. One more who wielded metahuman fires with the precision and accuracy of a needle laser. 
It did not matter to her how they saw her. She had her mission. Save as many as you can. She did not answer prayers. She followed the web of the futures, ruthlessly, bending her intellect upon the paths that told her, there, that one, and sent her flashing across the sky like a comet. And perhaps that broke the faith of some, who saw her and her siblings make seemingly arbitrary or even senseless decisions, if one weighed those decisions only in terms of faith. But their duty was to the future, not faith. If she had been mortal, she would have long since fallen to the earth exhausted. But when darkness, lit by the fires of burning buildings as well as her own, closed over the city, when the last of the war machines had swept up as many of the fallen as they could and made their escape, she took to a perch atop the building that her omnipresent intellect told her was called the Sun Trust Plaza, and brooded down over the ruins. She, and her siblings, had done what they could. And now it was time to wait for the futures to settle into a new configuration, bent into new patterns by their intervention. Then came the still, small voice in her heart. An instrument is needed. Will you stay? A seraphim is not often startled. This made her raise her head. She, angel of fire and love as she was, loved humanity. And not with the abstract agape of her siblings, but the warmer, closer to mortal Phileos. For as long as there had been creatures that stood upright on two legs, she had watched them, studied them, cared about them. And sometimes she regretted, deeply, not being permitted to intervene. But an instrument was needed. I will stay. Wait is over. The first book of Steve Livy's Aquapura trilogy is available now from Subatomic Books. Meet Crixus Oran, a plumber on an epic odyssey of redemption through an ancient world. Want to try before you buy? Listen to the free audiobook or download the free ebook or subscribe to a chapter a day through your email. Log on to www.aquapuratrilogy.com for more information. Echo is hiring. Log on to www.echometahumans.com and join the Echo Mock Street team. Your mission? Spread the word about the Secret World Chronicle.